morning, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our first-timers. Welcome. Thank you for coming to spend an hour with us and calling us your home for a minute. Well, we're going to begin a, a new series called The Faithfulness of God. Today we're going to talk about his long-standing faithfulness as it's been seen through the ages and then how that applies to you today. Turn with me over to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And a fresh welcome to all of those who are viewing via live stream. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 13, excuse me, 11 through 13. 11 through 13. The faithfulness of God. Paul is writing. And he says, Now these things happened to them as, ex as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed that he does not fall. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Lord, help as we study. Three things I'd like to highlight to you today. One, how history helps. Two, how hubris hurts. And three, what it means to see and experience God hinders seduction. History helping, hubris hurting, and how God hinders seduction. God is faithful. We're going to give you an opportunity to do it all at once. God is faithful. There you go. This is, this is how you still breathe. This is how you got here. This is how you understand the scriptures. All because God is faithful. And it's not because you are. It's not because you set your alarm clock and faithfully decided to get yourself together to come to church. It's because God enables you to do all that you can do that is right. We as human beings are so flawed, we've proven that we can't do right without him. That we will tend toward selfishness, toward disobedience, toward arrogance, toward, toward a belief that somehow we can save ourselves, be our own redeemer. That's the way human beings tend. We bend it that way. And that you understand Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior that he died for your sin, was buried, rose again, that you understand how important it is to be under the authority of his will and listen to his word to determine what that will looks like, that you need to read your Bible on a regular basis, in fact, read it, that you need to pray and have a great devotional life, that you need to be connected to believers so that there can be strength in numbers and you can provide the kind of support necessary for somebody else and somebody else for you, that you understand these things when you almost have forgotten because you've lived so well so long you've almost forgotten that you didn't used to understand these things and you did what you wanted to do and the only way that you got to the place of understanding these things is that God opened your mind to understand the scriptures and he revealed his son to you as the savior and as a result of those those things in particular which are completely directed by him and not inspired by us, 
we then responded affirmatively so that we can live right and do right. But it's all because of his faithfulness to pursue us and that we didn't pursue him. God is faithful. And Paul is working as best he can to help the Corinthians understand his faithfulness. And he starts with the preceding verses to this one. The entire chapter of 1 Corinthians is a at least the, the prior 10 verses, are about Israel's journey and specifically through the wilderness. Um, when Israel was delivered from, from Egypt, out from under Pharaoh's foot and heel, they were, they were supposed to go straight to the promised land, a land that flowed with milk and honey, which represented abundant provision, meaning that there would be enough milk to supply for the uh, cattle who had calves, whereby it flowed like a river, and enough vegetation around uh, that, that provided the, the food for the cattle, as well as for the bees who pollinated everything to produce honey that dripped from trees. There was so much. Flowed with milk and honey was a common proverb that allowed people to understand abundance of provision. The distance and time for a normal traveler to go from Egypt to the promised land was roughly a week. If you had two million people and a whole bunch of cattle and sheep, maybe two or three, the Israelites took 40 years. God's desire is for you to enter into your land of promises. This terra firma is not our home. At least it's not the home upon, we wish to, wish, upon which we should concentrate now. Sometime in the latter part of whatever the next phase of God's will is for his people and what a new planet looks like, this will be a place where we dwell. But now with sin creeping in and, and infesting every corner of society, there is a God who is in this world, little g, who helps to run the world system. And this is not our home right now. Our home is there. But as much as our home is there, God is doing everything he can to try to transform the planet while you are here. It's never going to be what it should be until he returns and fixes all things that we cannot. But until he returns, our job is to make sure that as much of his will and his kingdom is manifest in our reality and is progressing through our lives to touch other people's reality. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Where? How? Most of the body of Christ is more focused on how I can get to heaven rather than bringing heaven here. And everything about Jesus' prayer, that Lord's prayer, is about thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on the planet just like it's done there. Let this be a mirror. Let our reality be a mirror to what's happening there. And our job as believers is to decrease the distance between heaven and earth. Every day of our lives. So your home ought to be an outpost of glory. It ought to be a little place in which Eden, if you will, can exist. Now, Eden will never be again until whatever God does in the very end with the new heaven and new earth. But the kingdom is supposed to be the best expression of Eden that we can find. 
Now, let, let me help you. God's faithfulness has been seen throughout the ages. And it's, it's evident in the fact that the planet still exists and there are people all over the world who love him. And as, as the song says, it's, it's 5 o'clock somewhere. It's 11 o'clock somewhere. Somebody's worshiping. That all over the planet, people like you are saying the same thing I'm saying now. Singing the same songs, if you will, that we're singing now concentrating on who he is as a congregation in order to see his will come in their lives and in the lives of those around him. God has done something amazing with the progression of his will throughout humanity, even though humanity was not a willing recipient. Always trying to go the wrong way, God has been faithful to bring his will about in spite of humanity, not because of it. Amen. Let me help you with this. History helps. It's important that you understand what has gone before so you know how to address your issues now because somebody has lived through what you're going through. Amen. Somebody has. This isn't new. This is why Paul says there isn't a temptation upon which has come to you, which is foreign. The enemy has no new tricks. It's the same old stuff which really indicts us. Like he did this last week and we saw the videotape. We saw the MP3. We watched it on YouTube. Somebody's life just fall apart. And then all of a sudden, we're reliving that same experience. There is nothing new. We have watched everybody else blow it. And God is trying to help us understand this is what history tells us. And they went through it for our benefit. Everything that they did was for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now that sounds real apocalyptic. Like somehow we're about to enter into the next big war where everything's Armageddon's going to happen. That's not what this is. This is saying this, and it's interesting that, that most versions in the Bible will say not the end of the age, but the ends of the ages have come. Meaning that there are ages where God has demarcated certain things with respect to his covenant and added major moments and things to it so that he could give people an idea about what he was doing in a greater way than he did the last age. And so I've broken the ages up in our version of humanity, in our version of humanity, in this idea of humanity throughout scripture so that we would understand a little bit about how God has, has, has cordoned off different periods of time where he did different things because he's always had one thing in mind to fix man to help man be what he created man to be in the beginning and so in order to understand what his mindset was about what the beginning was you got to go back to the beginning so let's look at Genesis the first age was the creation age where he made all things and everything that is created was created back then we create nothing we manufacture things we take whatever he has already created and we change it in order to serve us best. We like to say, boy, that was a creative moment. Boy, he's a great creator. No, great manufactured moment. Amen. God is the only one who can make something out of nothing. Everything else, everything else, everything else we do, everything else we have is that which we then take what is and then make it into something else. That's manufacturing. But the creation moment was huge. It was massive. It was important. And in that, he created man and said, I want you to steward over all things. I want you to subdue the earth and rule it 
and multiply and fill it with all of my will, meaning my people, your people, who are my people, who will do my will. Do that, Adam and Eve. Make it happen. And then there was the Adamic age where Adam fell. He didn't do God's will. He blew it, and God said, now I'm going to have to figure out how in the world to get man back. And there was an app for that. (laughs) Meaning there was an application that God brought to bear to fix man. And the application was, I'm going to start a process called redemption. The sentence for man was death. You eat of that tree, you're going to die. And that day, Adam began to die. But God said, I'm going to figure out a way to bring life through death. Death will not have the final word here. And so he went and he killed an animal. And since that time, up until the time of Christ, animal sacrifice had been the substitutionary death for man because God did not want man to die. And he clothed Adam with those animal skins and covered Adam's nakedness. Now, why was that important? I mean, when you got two people on the planet and both of them look at one another and they're both naked, you think, who else cares? (laughs) Who cares? Who cares? But sin messes up our vision. See, they weren't ever supposed to see one another like that. They viewed one another as innocent before that. But as soon as one betrayed the other with respect to sin... Eve gave to her husband and ate. Adam didn't cover his wife by telling the serpent, get out of here. You want to talk to this family, you talk to me. He didn't do his job. She didn't do her job. Now that both of them violated the covenant, they ate and they saw one another differently. It says the eyes of both of them were opened and they saw each other as being naked. Meaning Eve saw Adam and said, I've never seen you like this. And Adam saw Eve and said, I never seen, who are you? Why did you let this happen to me? And they couldn't stand the way each other saw each other, so they covered each other so the other wouldn't see their shame. It wasn't just about their own identity. It was about how they saw the other person looking at them. And when somebody offends you, hear me, you don't look at them the same anymore. Though they long to be clothed with the innocence with which you saw them before, it never comes in your eyes unless you use the purpose and plans of redemption in order to see them as Christ sees them. This is why forgiveness is so important. It restores things that have been broken. Are you listening to me? God said, those fig leaves you have aren't going to work. Neither is hiding from me going to work. I'm going to have to kill an animal and cover you so that you all don't view one another in shame any longer. App for that. Application. And then from there, God had the, the, the Noahic age. Now, in the Adamic age, he said, right there in, in Eden, not only am I covering you, but Eve, I want you to know, your son, the seed is coming from you, he's going to crush that serpent's head. And, and the serpent's going to bruise his heel. I want you to know that's going to happen. I'm going to fix this. Defeat is not going to be your portion forever. There we have the foretelling of the Messiah in Eden. And since that time, God has been building on that one particular revelation so that people would know when he came who he was. With Noah, we see Noah building an ark. And what is that? What is that except a big picture of how God was going to save the world through an ark called the church? 
I mean, God began then to use imagery and different structures and different kinds of metaphors in order to say, this is what's going to happen. Take cue. So important was it that God gave inspiration through Jesus. As Jesus came in, he said, in the days that are to come, it's going to be like Noah. Noah referenced all, I mean, Jesus referenced all the way back to Noah saying God was speaking about this moment now, back then. He was speaking about what's going to come way back. Watch what God has done in successive generations. You had the Noahic age where he added some things to the covenant. Then you had the patriarchal age, which was the age of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob where the people of Israel, a particular group of folks were established in order for God to best bring his will through them and to establish a covenant through that people that would allow the Messiah ultimately to come. From the patriarchal age, then you've got the, the Mosaic age where now this people came and you had the law established. And it was a separate group established for God and worship was begun. This was the first time we had organized worship for the people of God. While they were in Egypt, there was none. Everybody just kind of figured it out. Now you had a tabernacle. Now you had laws. Now you had priests. Now you had order. God set something up. And then from the Mosaic age, you had the monarchial age and the prophetic age. I combined them together. Because even though it's not necessarily a different age with respect to laws, it is a different age with respect to administration of his covenant. And that the, the, the division of powers happened. During the days of Moses and the judges, you had a judge who was in charge. He was both the leader and the prophet for the most part. Now in the days of the kings, you had a king who had a prophet. And then you had the priesthood as well. And so you had a different administration of how God brought his will through man. Now we see the Messiah being seen not only as somebody who would ruin the devil's day and then destroy him and crush his head, but now he sits on a throne. David, I know you wanted to build me a house, 2 Samuel 7, but I want you to know, you're not supposed to do it, but I'm going to build your house, and you will never cease to have a man sit on the throne. That was Jesus. So God began to show something else in that age. And then from that age, you come to the ecclesiastical age, which is the church ecclesiastical aid, that ecclesi, Jesus said, I, I will build my church, my called out ones, my ecclesia in Greek. And that's where we get ecclesiology and ecclesiastical behavior and conduct. It means church. This is the last age. This is it. And all the other ages that have come before are so that we can be great. You see, God, God doesn't have another plan. The church was it. You're saying, really? <laughs> this is the best idea he had? Yeah. Yeah, I realize it's flawed. I get that. There are issues. But this is the best idea. When Jesus dies for a man or woman's sin, it doesn't get any better than that. When he, raised, when, he, when he raises from the dead for our justification, it doesn't get any better than that. When he establishes a group of people that can begin to, to say what community looks like and what his people, not just his person, but his people are to be in covenant and loyalty and love and forgiveness. And they begin to let that covenant be seen in their relationship so that it is so deep that everybody else in the world says, you have to be disciples of Christ because of your love one for another. When that happens, it doesn't get any better than this. It doesn't get any better. Now, you need to get better. 
The concept of Churchill is the best it gets. He doesn't have another idea. This is it. And so the ends of all the ages that God established has come upon you. Which means this. There is no age that ought to have more victory than us. No age. Now, for all of you Bible scholars out there, I realize that there is a new heaven and a new earth coming. That's a different kind of age, but it doesn't have a new church. It's just a different dispensation of who we are. And when, when you think about all this, listen, we got it in this age. It just keeps getting better. We have it so much better than the early church. I mean, they had it great. I mean, they had, they had Peter and John as their pastors. Yeah. I mean, those dudes walk with Jesus. Are you kidding me? It got, it got great. But they didn't have a New Testament. Those dudes were pinning the thing. And so all of a sudden these letters get passed around and people understand what best conduct looks like and what, what, what ecclesiology looks like, the study of the church and, and what's the best practice of the church and how, how pastors ought to be and, and what pastors are and, and, and what's a teacher and, and what's an evangelist and, 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 and prophets still exist and, and apostles and, and how they all fit. And now you got deacons and, and you have church order and, and all these things get established in the epistles. But not all of them had every letter, depended upon the region in which you were. And so they were getting their information as best they could. Somebody write a letter to a church, and then they'd copy that thing. They'd have scribes to sit down and write it all down. And, and then they'd send that letter to another city and send it to another city who'd send it to another city. And it, it, took, it took years for the letter at, at the church at Corinth to get to Rome or to get to Thyatira or to Philadelphia. They probably didn't even know it existed. We have the whole New Testament. Amen. Uh, I, I'm just trying to give you an appreciation for this age. And see, they, they, they didn't have apps. <laughs> Fifteen years ago, when I said turn to 1 Corinthians 10, rustling of pages. <laughs> the pastor had to wait till every last page was turned so he could read it. Crickets now. Nobody moves. It's all this. <laughs> you got the Bible at your fingertips. It's in your pocketbook. It's it. And then and then you can listen on online. If you don't like the the, the old radios that we like. 50-year-olds like radios. Yes, they're great. You push buttons and turn knobs. We're used to that. You can get a radio on an app. We have songs where you can worship in your car. We have greater access. We used to have to go to the bookstore to buy a book. Do you know what a bookstore was? <laughs> Does anybody know what a bookstore was? That's the only way you could buy a book. You go straight to Amazon, click. It's on your phone. We have more access to victory than any age. Why? Because all of those ages were for our benefit. And what the Israelites went through and how they failed and how they didn't do right, that was for us so we know to do right. 
In the NFL, they watch a lot of film. A lot of film. And, 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 and they watch, there is, there is a um, cooperation between teams. They are not enemies. They're opponents. And so in order to figure out what team you are facing is doing this week, a prior opponent of that team will send you film of their game so you can break it down. And then you are supposed to send film of whoever somebody else is facing to them. And so every week, FedEx is delivering film to NFL teams so they can watch what happened last week. And actually, it's two weeks out because teams develop uh, game plans two weeks before they get to the, the other team. And they're watching film. And, and, and not only the coaches watching film to scheme about what these teams do. Are they right-handed? Are they left-handed? Do they throw this percentage of the time? What do they do on first down, second down, third down? But then players and position coaches help the players watch film on individual players. When he lines up like this, he's normally doing this. He's only got three moves. And if you know exactly when he does this, you know exactly what move is coming, and you can go ahead and deal with that. They watch film all the time. Your Bible is film. How much film do you watch? So you know exactly what the devil's doing. Because it's not new. He is the same opponent. He's been doing it to humanity for the last 6,000 recorded years in Scripture. Probably more than that, but that's what we have. And I'm not saying anything with respect to what you think I might be saying if you think I'm saying something other. <laughs> I'm just saying we only have 6,000 recorded years in, in Scripture. That's all we got. But we got enough to know, oh, when I see that, that means the enemy's trying to get me to do that. Okay, I'm not going to do that. When I catch this woman's eye in the mall and she does this, <laughs> just one eye, close, just one eye. Oh, the devil's doing this. I got it. No, no, no. What we? Oh, how you doing? <laughs> destroyed their life. You haven't read any, you haven't seen any film, have you? You have not seen any film. You think this is brand new. Israelites, 10 miracles in, in Egypt, 10 plagues that came on the Egyptians did not come on the Israelites. 10 gnats, by the way, it'd be good for, for Virginians to repent just on the basis of gnats, just gnats alone. <laughs> July and August, it is horrible here, horrible, horrible gnats. You can't go outside without. <laughs> it's a plague. I'm telling you, it's a plague. It's a plague. It ain't natural. You're used to your plague. That's why you think it's okay. It's a plague. I come from Kansas. We don't deal with that. It's a plague. <laughs> Flies, blight, locusts, sun going dark, death of the firstborn, all happening across the street, but not on this side of the street. Wow. And that, that wasn't enough. Red Sea. Like, Really? Wall of water on one side, wall of water on another. Do you know how deep the soil is wet in a sea? It could be wet 
for 20 to 30 feet deep in a place like the Red Sea because of the weight of the water. In the ocean, it's even deeper. It says the Israelites, in one night, we're talking about when Moses lifted up the staff in the water park, in one night, that wind came in, and they walked across on dry ground. That's part of the miracle that nobody ever expresses. It should have been muddy. Dry, how did it get dry so quick? God makes your footing sure. God, he makes your footing right. They go through, and that was, I mean, that's, that's miracle enough. But the last one goes through. He lifts the pillar of cloud that has separated the, Pharaoh, the, 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 the Egyptians and Pharaoh from the Israelites. And so they couldn't get through. It's kind of like a tornado. They couldn't get through. He lifts it, and, and the sea's still open. Pharaoh says, let's go get them, boys. And they go through. And on cue, Moses says, close. <laughs> and the Israelites are, whoa, so excited that Moses wrote a song. He didn't write songs. This is the only song we got from Moses. What a moment. And then they get out in the wilderness, and the first thing they experience is no water for three days. Three days, no water. And the Israelites are coming to Moses saying, we want a new leader. God has brought us out here to die. This is horrible. What kind of leader are you to lead a people like this? Two million people with livestock to no water. We're going to die out here in the wilderness. It would have been better if we had stayed in Egypt and eaten nasty onion soup. That's what leek soup was, onion soup. I don't like onion soup to today. I just, it's a theological thing for me. <laughs> it's just theological maybe. I don't know. Not trying to be religious. I just trying to be religious. I guess I... <laughs> We just stayed in Egypt and eaten onion soup. <laughs> Moses said, you rebellious folks, what's wrong with you? Did you not just see what God did for you? He struck his rock, struck, struck the rock, water came out, watered all the people and the livestock. The sad thing is, okay, you blew it once, I get it, but nobody, we have no record that anybody came back to Moses and said, sorry. I repent. I realize God is for us. You'll never see that happen for me again. Nobody. Such that God tested them nine more times in the wilderness. The exact same things that happened as a sign in Egypt. Times, the t number of times, ten signs in Egypt, ten tests in the wilderness. They failed every one after the ten signs. And that in addition to the Red Sea. These things happened for us. For us because it's supposed to show how faithful our God is and if we trust him he'll help us I'm taking too long history helps hubris hurts those of you who, who stand take heed lest you fall you think and, and, and let me say standing is, is important we need to stand we don't ever need to find ourselves in a horizontal position when it comes to spiritual things we need to make sure that we are holding on to the promises of God that are in contrast to everything the world is telling us reality appears to be. We need to hold on to it. When our bodies start feeling like they're, they're not going in the right direction, we need to say, Lord, I know my body feels one way, but I know what your word says. I know what the doctor said, but I know what the word says. He spoke a word. You spoke a word. I believe his word identifies. Your word clarifies. 
your word brings understanding to my mind about how you want to deal with me with respect to what he said. So if he says I have cancer, I might have something in my body that's not responding to your word, but I'm believing that your word is going to make it respond. This, this allows us a privilege of standing when the world says, lie down and take it. But it's important that when we do stand, we understand that we could fall. And so you're not standing on your own strength. This isn't mind over matter. It's not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. This is a surrender, saying, I can't do this on my own. I am trusting that what you said for me and your will for me is better than whatever I say or what my will is for myself. I need you in every area of my life. I surrender my life to you. Come and inform me about how I need to address my reality. That way, when you stand, you won't fall. Because the enemy, one of the things that happened there in the curse... When, when Adam and Eve fell, he cursed the, the serpent. And be, before it, it was, we, the serpent was a serpent. We don't think it was a snake because he actually said one of the curses will be that you will crawl on your belly. Well, if he was already on his belly, that wouldn't have been a curse to, to happen. So it probably had legs. It was more like a lizard. And, and he said this, you will crawl on your belly all the days of your life and you will eat dust. What are we but glorified dust? Wonderfully constructed dirt clods are we. That's what our flesh is. He has us for lunch when we stand on our own. So you better trust in God with every fiber of your being. Don't just lean on him. Fall on him. And then lastly, he says, and our God is faithful. He's faithful because he provides film for us. He's brought all these ages together so that we could be the fulfillment of everything he desired when he thought about redeeming mankind. He is faithful, and that in spite of humanity, constantly saying no. Amazing. And I want you to know that same faithfulness extends to you. God is faithful. And he will make sure that no temptation that comes on you is unusual. It's common. It's happened before. And he will provide a way of escape so that you may bear up under it and not succumb to it. He will hinder the seduction in your life. He'll make sure that it does not overcome you, but you can overcome it. Now, there, there's a saying that <clears throat> is, gets a little bit um, uh, confusing. Uh, people believe it. it uh, here. God never gives you more than you can bear. That's a scripture that's not a scripture. Everybody says that's in the Bible. No. I, I, I give you a task for the week. Please find it. Because I want to confess it and believe it. I really do. It'd be great. But I can't find it any place in scripture. Now where they interpret it from. They extrapolate it from this, I think, that God will not allow a temptation to come upon you that you cannot bear, but he will provide an escape from under it so it will not overcome you. I think they take it from this because it's God's practice for me to always give me more than I can bear. That's, that's a standard operating procedure for bread. What can we put on him today? <laughs> and I'm always trying to offload whether it be cast my cares upon him 
or get some other staff member. <laughs> I'm trying to offload all the time. And hear me, it's not just about ministry. It's about, it's, it's about Christianity. What's the first thing he calls you to when he calls you to himself? The cross. That's more than you can bear. Therefore, you die. And that is, that is the best posture for you to be in to be used by God. He loves to anoint dead sticks. Aaron's rod that budded, it's a dead stick. He likes to take things that are completely lifeless in and of themselves and produce life that looks more like him than anything else. But in this capacity, absolutely. He will not allow a temptation to come upon you that you can't get out of. He provides exit signs all over the place. You know, in, in the state of Virginia and every place else that I know of, you cannot construct a building without exit signs. I'm looking at two right now. You can't see them because they're behind you. But they are big and they are red. Everybody has to be able to see them because if something happens that's untoward, they need to know where to go to get out. There are things that happen in your life that are untoward all the time. The enemy is doing everything he can to try to burn down your building, to try to discourage you, to try to bring calamity on you. And there are things that happen, but those things that happen are not those to which you need to succumb on the regular. God provides a way of escape. So when you encounter temptation, it seems to overwhelm you to such an extent that you feel like, oh, I can't stop. Yes, you can. There is a way of escape. And you need to run to the exit as quickly as possible. Now, I know you feel like if you go ahead and do this, God will forgive you. He will. But you will have to go through a time of restoration that is painful. And in the time of restoration, you will do the exact same stuff you would have done to, to escape what you just went through, which is pray and read your Bible. <laughs> Except now you'll have the whole issue of trying to restore trust with people you messed up, whether it's embezzlement, whether it's adultery, whether it's fornication. It's a mess. God provides a way of escape because he is faithful like that. And we ought to have more victory than we have defeat. The moniker for most Christians when you talk about the, the, the sense of overcoming in their life is defeat. Well, I'm just, I'm just, I'm only human, right? I mean, every, nobody's perfect, right? So, like, I'm struggling, right? I mean, I'm, 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 we're all a work in progress, right? All those euphemisms for, yeah, I enjoy sin. I really enjoy sin, and I'm in bondage. I don't know really how to get out, and I'm not quite sure whether I really want to. I just want to go to heaven. That's what that means. When in Christianity, victory ought to be our portion. I didn't even mention the fact with respect to the church, not only do we have the experiences from prior ages, but we have the Holy Spirit. I mean, he empowers us every day to be a witness for who Jesus is. Are you kidding me? And you're talking about defeat all the time? What's wrong with you? There ought to be 12 and 4 seasons on the inside of you. Regularly. That's NFL talk. They play 16 games, 12 and 4, you go to the playoffs. That's good. That's good. That's real good. That's real good. But most Christians are 3 and 13. Some are the 2009 Detroit Lions. They went 0 and 16. Never happened before. 
I think it was 2009, someplace in there. Worst team in history. But we got a lot of Christians that are the worst in history. Worst in history. It doesn't have to be that way. More victory than defeat. Why? Not because you're so good, but because God has been so faithful to bring these things down to you and to empower you and help you and strengthen you and to give you exit signs every place. Victory should be your expectation every day. I've gone over. Let's pray. God help us, please. Empower us to understand your faithfulness to us.